The following message is part of the preaching ministry of Berlin Baptist Church in Sally, South Carolina. We pray God's richest blessings for you as you study His Word. All right, well, if you could find your place in the book of Hosea, chapter 2, we're going to pick up where we left off. We'll be looking at verses 14 to 23 today in a message entitled Restoration. Just as a quick review, if you remember that the first three chapters of Hosea kind of have a, an interesting arrangement. There starts out a narrative to kind of set the, the tone and the story, and then it moves into a, a time of, or a, a pronouncement of judgment. Then there's a message of hope. Then there's an, uh, another message of judgment. Then there's more narrative. There's, it's kind of a, a story woven together. And last week, we were looking at judgment. We were looking at how God's judgment comes upon His people because of their sinfulness, because of their uh, what He called spiritual adultery, because they were worshiping idols and not worshiping the one true God, and how that, that's a problem, right? That's the, one of the main problems. That's why you look at the Ten Commandments, the very first one. You'll have no other gods but me. The second one, you'll have no idols. That's top two on the list, right? So now we're moving into out of judgment into a time of restoration in the future. So as we get ready to talk about that, I want to ask you if you can think of uh, maybe it's your family, maybe it's your group of friends, uh, people you know well, pretty well, not just an acquaintance, but people you know, friendships, and I want you to see if you can identify, and I don't holler any names out, okay, because that would be bad, but see if you can think in that group of people, in your little group of people, is there one or two that you would just look at and think of and say, you know, that one there is particularly stubborn or even hard-headed. Like you might think of that person, you might close your eyes, you can see their face and you think, yep, that one there is hard-headed. Stubborn. And by the way, if you can't think of one, that means it's you in that group, okay? So that means they might be thinking that about you. But if, I'm just trying to get you to think about, for me, I can just, a childhood memory. My father would say about his mother, my grandmother, uh, just there's no point in arguing with her. It's just that once she makes her mind up, that's just how it's going to be. You don't argue with your grandmother. It's like, okay, I get it. Uh, and that was true, because if you ever mess up and try to do that, you'd find out real quick, no, this is why I said don't do that, because it's just no point. It's just this is the way it's going to be. Once our mind's made up, it's made up. So think about that characteristic in this context. Uh, maybe you are trying to do something or accomplish something. Maybe you're working on a project of some kind, and someone comes along beside you and says, you want some help? You need some help? And, and what does that person say? No, I got it. I got it. You sure? I mean, I, I could, I'd be glad to help you. No, no, I got it. I, got, I, can, I can do it. I can handle it. Right? And, and no matter how much someone may ask or offer to help, the response is always, no, 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 I got it. I can, I can handle it. I can, I can get it done. Now, there's all kind of reasons. We're not going to sit here and do a psychology lesson of why that's the case. 
but there's all kind of different reasons why that response may be given and no help wants to be received. But in spiritual things, I mean, I'm not talking about, well, I'm building a shed and I might need some help, but no, I, I, I want to do it myself. I can do it. I'm not talking about something like that. I'm talking about in spiritual matters, we all need help. There is none of us who is self-sufficient when it comes to spiritual things. That's just not reality. That's why Jesus came and lived a life of, of perfection and no sin. That's why He went and died on a cross. Because if we could handle it ourselves, we would handle it. But we can't. We're incapable of fixing our spiritual problems on our own. So that's one difficulty that we will find in life because in every other sphere of life we are tempted we're even taught from a young age hey you can do anything you put your mind to just try hard work hard you can do it right and that's a good encouragement that instills good work ethic but that's not really true is it i mean we've lived life some of us longer than others right but has that has that come out to be true? You can do anything you set your mind to. No, you can't. That's just not true. It's, it's a good way to teach people to work hard and do their best, but it's simply not true, and especially not in spiritual things. And so when we take that mindset that we've been taught since, since a young age and we try to do everything on our own and we try to, well, I can do it, I just have to work harder... Well, if I didn't succeed, maybe I just didn't try hard enough. Okay, well, maybe it's just you need help, right? So in spiritual things, it can be very dangerous to hang on to that mindset that I can, do, I can do it, I can do anything, I can do it all by myself, I don't need anybody to help me. Well, in spiritual things, that's dangerous. Let me read this uh, quote to you from J.J. Given. He says, Many times... God sends successive afflictions upon His people to break their hearts, to humble them thoroughly, and at last He speaks kindly to them. This is mercy and truth meeting together, righteousness and peace kissing each other. It's the connecting link between the enormity of our sins and the greatness of divine mercy between the vileness of our iniquity and the riches of divine grace. Paul would even write in 2 Corinthians 12, when he was struggling with this thorn in the flesh, he wanted, he pleaded with God, take it away from me, take it away from me. And it says three times he pleaded with the Lord. And do you remember what God said to him? He said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. And so oftentimes we, we don't want to ever get to that point, but sometimes we need to get to the point where, God, I can't do it. i got nothing left. I need help. And then God says, well, it's about time because I've got all the help you need. I can do what you can't is what God tells us. His grace is made perfect in our weakness. His power is demonstrated in the fact that we can't do it on our own. There's no other explanation. God did that. Right? Doesn't that make sense when we see it from those perspectives? 
And so Paul ended up that passage in chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians that he said, I'm going to just, I'll be glad with afflictions and, and trials and troubles and difficulties because I know when I'm weak, then I'm strong because of Christ. So in today's passage, Hosea chapter 2, verse 14 to verse 23, we're going to see a, a peek forward in this prophecy to the restoration of Israel that God will bring about in three particular areas. But let's read the text, and then we'll talk about those uh, just briefly, uh, each one in order. First of all, verse 14 here in chapter 2 of Hosea. Here's what the Bible says. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, talking about Israel, bring her into the wilderness and speak upon her heart. Then I will give her her vineyards from there, and the valley of Achor as a door of hope. And she will sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me Ishai, and will no longer call me Baali. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, so that they will be mentioned by their names no more. In that day I will also make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky and the creeping things of the ground, and I will break the bow, the sword, and war from the land. I will make them lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and in compassion. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know the Lord. It will come about in that day that I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the heavens and they will respond to the earth. And the earth will respond to the grain, to the new wine and to the oil. And they will respond to Jezreel. I will sow her for myself in the land. I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. Father, in Jesus' name I pray that you will speak clearly to our hearts this morning. For Christ's sake, amen. This passage is, is interesting in, in several ways. One, because it continues that pattern of going from judgment to hope to judgment to hope, uh, which is necessary, I believe, because of the way things work out just in real life. Uh, no one does right all the time, right? Uh, it's, it's impossible. Uh, it's not impossible for us to do right, but it is impossible for us to do right all the time. And so there's always this uh, mention of consequence and judgment, but there's always this mention of hope that is held out if you will just repent and confess your sins and turn back to me, God says, then I'll forgive you and you'll be healed and you'll be restored. But there are consequences. I mean, last week's message was sin has consequences, right? So there are consequences, but there's also hope held out at the same time. So first thing I want to see here today is the first two verses of this passage where God renews His love. So God renews His love. The Lord initiates reconciliation. And so uh, I think you'll see that. I've got a slide up here. I think it's got the... Yeah, there we go. The first point there, God renews His love. So if you see the first two verses, how the Lord initiates the reconciliation, 
uh, if you look at the first word of verse 14, is therefore, which means look back at what just happened. So that would be for our context. Last week we studied chapter 2 and we looked up to verse 13 and it was all about judgment. It was all about how God was going to do some things to, to the nation of Israel because of their idolatry. But then when you get to verse 14 and the first word is therefore, because of all that, Look what God is going to do. I will allure her. You know what that means? Allure. I mean, I'm going to draw her to me. I'm going to draw my people back to me. Remember what we said last week? That God is always pursuing us. He's after us. He's always reminding us, the farther we go away, He's still saying, hey, come back home. We talked about the prodigal son last week. There's always the Father looking Surveying the landscape, looking for you to come back home. So God's going to allure His people, He says, and I will bring her uh, into the wilderness and speak upon her heart kindly to her. And so the Lord's going to restore blessing, give her the vineyards back. You see verse 12 where the vines were destroyed in last week's passage. And so disgrace is now going to give way to hope there's a mention, if you, if you want to write this down, you can, in, back in Joshua chapter 7, verses 24 to 26, there's a mention of the Valley of Achor. And so this is the story of the man named Achan, spelled A-C-H-A-N, Achan. And if you remember that story, the sin that he had committed and why it was so great was he had taken some things from Jericho. Remember when God's people marched around Jericho seven times, and on the seventh day, seven times, and they loud shout, and the walls came down, and God's people prevailed, right? You remember that? But do you remember what God said about what to do with the stuff that was there? He said, destroy it all, because it was devoted to idols. And so just destroy it all. Well, Achan thought he would say, well, look, why should we throw out all this good stuff? We'll take some of this back home, right? And we'll offer it to the Lord. That's not what, I mean, it sounds well and good, but that's not what God said to do, right? It's not what God said to do. That was the point. And so Achan's sin was that he took some things from Jericho that God told him not to take. He hid them in his tent. So then him and his sons and his daughters and everything that belonged to him was stoned and burned for punishment. That seems harsh, doesn't it? A little bit. Well, it was sin against God. It was sin and disobedience against his command. He had just destroyed the walls of the city. He had just given them complete victory. Does it then make sense that he can't provide for us after that? After a, a miracle like that? Is our, is our memory so short of what God does in our lives that even in a moment when he just performed a miracle in front of us, and we already forget, well, I better take some of this with me because, you know, never know. What, what, what is, what's the old saying? It's better to have it and not need it than need it and not have it? Except for when God tells you explicitly, destroy all this stuff. I have stuff for you that's better than this. Get rid of all this. And, and so he didn't. So that's why the disgrace of the Valley of Achor is giving way to hope now because the way... Uh, God says it, I'm gonna, the valley of Achor is going to be a door of hope. And he says to his people, 
You're going to sing as in the days of our youth. He even reminds them of the Exodus. He said, just like when you come up from the land of Egypt, you're going to sing, you're going to rejoice. Now, I want to give a little illustration here about the difference between doing what God says and not doing what God says and then how that makes us feel. Okay, this, this is probably going to be, a lot of people are probably going to be able to identify with this. I want to paint a picture for you real quickly of a youth group retreat, like a summer camp, like, okay, we're all going up to a mountain, like, picture, I, I took some kids years ago up to Lookout Mountain, it's on the border of Georgia and Tennessee, it's up right near Chattanooga, you kind of go into Tennessee and then back into Georgia, but it's up on the mountain there, Lookout Mountain, and a week-long camp, and, and Here's what happens usually. We go on a Sunday afternoon. We're going to stay until the following Sunday or Saturday. And uh, so we're up there seven days, usually about day four. The church devotion time at night, we've had a day of worship in the morning, all kind of small group activities during the day, and then worship at night. And then we get together as, a, as our church group that night, talk about what God's doing. And here's usually what happens. About Thursday... Everybody starts crying. Everybody's just all emotional. God's doing all kind of stuff. People who were at odds with one another are reconciled, getting along. I mean, all kind of cool stuff's happening. God's doing some stuff. He's showing up. And, and here's what one or more of the teenagers will invariably say. I just wish this experience would never end. I just wish we could make it last forever. Do we have to go home? Blah, 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 blah. Right? Which is great because they recognize God's doing some things. But here's the interesting fact about that. You know why God's doing some things that week in that location, a couple hundred miles away from home? You know why? Let me tell you the, uh, the rules that were set down before we got there. Hey, when you get there, you're going to take your phone and you're going to drop it in this box. You're not going to touch it this week. So you're going to throw that away. There's not going to be a TV turned on. It's not going to be a computer. It's not going to be an iPod with earbuds. Listen to your music, your own music. This is, no, you, here's what you're going to do every day. We're going to wake up in the morning, we're going to go eat breakfast, then we're going to go to worship for an hour, hour and a half. Then we're going to break up into small groups, do some, some Bible study. Then you're going to be by yourself for 30, 45 minutes, just you and God. Then we're going to come back and eat lunch. And then we're going to go have some, some activities afternoon. Then you have some free time. Uh, and then we'll come back together for supper. And then you're going to have worship again. And then after worship is over, you're going to get with your because there's a bunch of different churches there, so then you get with your own church that evening and uh, talk about what God's done for you that day. Do you notice anything different? You're fasting from the world. You're feasting on the things of God. There's no distraction, no phone, no computer, no iPod, nothing. It's, it's, it's no technology, it's just you and God. So here's what we'd have to tell the group every single year when they'd be crying and all emotional and I wish this would never end. Well, why does it have to end? Did you realize that if you would do those things at home and 
put away the distractions of the world for some time and, and feast on the Word of God and the, the fellowship of God's people and worship of God. Do you realize if you did that, then that feeling would not end? That feeling would be replicated in your hometown, in your home church. All those things would happen the same way. It's because the difference is not the location. The difference is what your focus is on. I'm focusing on Jesus and the things of Jesus. And if I do that, I don't have to go 300 miles from home to make that happen. I just have to prioritize some things. I have to get uh, my mind free from some things and just open the Bible and, and sit alone with God, not be distracted, and guess what? A funny thing will happen. The same things you saw God doing when you were away for a week is the same things you're going to see God do sitting in your bedroom with an open Bible. He's not bound. Did you know that God doesn't just work at summer camp? Did you know that? He works wherever He wants to work. Wherever people are devoted to Him, He'll work. So God is renewing His love for His people and restoring some things, and He's going to bring them out into the wilderness so they'll be away from some distractions. Number two, God is renewing His relationship. Verse 16 down to verse 20. God's people are now going to refer to Him in a new way. The Bible says that He's... Uh, that they were referring to him as their, his, uh, what it means is the, the word literally means my master in verse 16. Baali, you see the word Baal in there, it's an idol. So instead of looking at an idol as the God, that word Ishai is a Hebrew word, my husband. It's a different relationship. So it's going to come about that day that his people are going to call him my husband, not my master. Because God's people are now going to forget about their idols. They're going to put them away. In fact, God says he's going to remove the names of the Baals from their mouth so they won't be mentioned anymore. He's going to make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, the creeping things of the ground. So God's people are now going to enjoy prosperity again, this covenant with the animal kingdom. Then you look at verse 12, where the beasts of the field devoured their, their vineyards and their fig trees. Well, that's not going to happen anymore because those things are going to be restored, the relationship with God, the relationship with creation. So people are also going to enjoy peace again because all the implements of war are going to be abolished. You see there where he says, I'm going to break the bow and I'm going to break the sword and the war from the land, they're going to lie down in safety in verse 18. And then in verse 19, God's people are going to enter into a new covenant, a new beginning. It's going to be eternal. It's going to be founded on righteousness and justice, loving kindness and compassion and faithfulness. And, and the Lord says in verse 20, when this happens, when this new covenant comes about, this new beginning... The Bible says, then you will know the Lord. You see at the end of verse 20? Then you will know the Lord. Which is interesting because the end of verse 13, look right up a few verses in verse 13. Look at the last thing he said there. She forgot me. 
Remember, that was the end of the passage on judgment. In verse 13, it says, She forgot me. Well, now it says, Then you'll know the Lord. Then there won't be any confusion about, Well, I thought the idols were providing these things. No, it's always God. It's always God who provides. So he's restoring his relationship with his people. They're going to know the Lord. They will serve God out of love instead of fear. J.J. Given writes that God's faithfulness is indispensable to Israel's perseverance. It guarantees ultimate and lasting success. See, God, he even says uh, in, the, in the New Testament, he says that even when we are faithless, he is faithful because he cannot deny himself. His faithfulness uh, helps us to keep on keeping on, so to speak, because we know that God is always going to be faithful. It's nothing less than the sovereign hand of God. Divine mercy and grace are, are mentioned in that, uh, that quote that I read at the very beginning, that no matter what happens, God is still at work and He's still pursuing us and drawing us closer to Him. So God is renewing His love. He's renewing His relationship. Number three, finally, God renews His blessing. The Lord is going to respond, it says in verse 21, in multiple ways. And it's a chain of events here that's triggered by God's hand. So if you think about the agricultural blessing, the vineyards back up in verse 15, the valley of Achor being a door of hope, and He's going to give her vineyards from there, from this place where He draws them out. Think about the chain of events that happens for all this to come about. God sends the rain. The earth drinks in the rain. The crops grow from the earth. Israel harvests the crops. The crops bring prosperity. And remember what the word Jezreel means? If you see this down here uh, in verse 22, they will respond to Jezreel. Jezreel means God sows. He's planting some things. He says he's going to sow her for myself in the land. So that's just a reminder that when Israel harvests crops and that brings about their prosperity, it's just a reminder God did that. God planted those seeds. So the Lord is going to establish Israel again. He's going to give compassion and mercy. Now look how he brings back into play the names. Remember from chapter 1, the names of the children? And they had certain meanings, not my people, no mercy. Right? Well, look here what he says in verse 23. He says, I will also have compassion on Lo Ruhamah, the Hebrew name, which means no mercy, no compassion. And then he says, I will say to those, uh, I will say to Lo Ami, who were not my people, you are my people. So the restoration includes a reversal of the judgment. So he's going to give mercy to the one who had no mercy. He's going to call them his people who were not his people. And look how they will respond. And they will say, you are my God. So there's a complete restoration of love, relationship, and blessing. And the Lord is establishing Israel. Now I want you to see, just so you can see as we finish up here, I want you to see how all this is connected. Because I don't want you to think, well, this is one story isolated in the Old Testament. 
So you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to give you a reference that you can look up if you'd like to later. I'm going to read it to you. In the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2, and verses 9 and 10. Now, you see what just happened, right? We're in Hosea, chapter 2, verse 23, and God says, I'm going to have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people, and they will say, you are my God. Well, in 1 Peter chapter 2, in verses 9 and 10, here's what the Bible says. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's a quote that Peter used from Hosea chapter 2 in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. Just to remind us, see, all this is connected. The Bible is one grand story of God's redemption. It points us to Christ because Christ is the one who accomplished the redemption that we now enjoy. One last little quote from J.J. Given, and then I'm going to end us up with some scripture. He writes, Old things are passed away, sinful things have ceased. There is a complete reversal of the sorrowful circumstances into which sin had plunged Israel. You see, sometimes things get so bad that we can't see a way out of them. And so for that time period, for that isolated moment, we could be tempted to think, well, there's just no way things are ever going to get any better. They're just going to be bad from now on. I guess this is just my lot in life. I'm just going to have to suffer through this, and it's just not going to ever be good for me. Well, human perspective and godly perspective is, is two different things. Because we're blinded by our circumstances oftentimes. We can't see beyond them because they may be so difficult and so trying, so challenging that we just don't think there's any way that it could ever get any better. Except for the fact that God says something to the contrary. Because in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul would write these words. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And He's committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. See, with Jesus... The story's not over just because we can't see past it. Just because our circumstances or our current condition seems hopeless, that's not what God sees. 
because God knows that in Christ old things are passed away. All things have become new. We are a new creation because of Jesus. Because of what He did. He became our sin so we could become His righteousness. And that tells me I'm never hopeless. No matter how bad things seem, no matter how difficult the circumstances may look from my human perspective, I belong to a God who has no limits. And He can do anything. And He has. And He will. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. For more information on Berlin Baptist Church, we invite you to explore our website at www.berlinchurchsc.org.